I would like to extend a warm welcome to you all to the next episode of Denton's Pod Chat. My name is Lynn Harrison. I am a partner in the restructuring, insolvency, and bankruptcy group of the international law firm of Denton's with more than 200 offices worldwide in 80 countries. Today, it's my distinct pleasure to bring to you a podcast addressing some of the current topics relating to cross-border M&A and insolvency in some of the, let's say, primary hubs, financial hubs in the world. As many of you might know, um, there's been some discussion um, in the press regarding the battle of the titans. And I, when I say the battle of the titans, I'm talking about the financial hubs of Hong Kong, Singapore, and the Cayman Islands. In 2020, the pandemic may have halted travel and shut borders, but it turns out that Asia's biggest financial hubs saw an opportunity to shift the global center of gravity for hedge funds and the world's wealthiest families. Today, we're gonna to talk a little bit about that. And I'm very fortunate to have with me today, my partner, Michael Wingrave um, in the Cayman Islands, my partner, Debbie Lynn in Singapore, and my partner, Vivian Tu, um, coming from, uh, from Hong Kong to kind of discuss this, this topic in some detail. Um, to put everything in context, Michael, um, why, why don't you describe exactly what is going on in these jurisdictions um, and set up the issue and then maybe we can have some follow-up from Vivian and Debbie um, to, to uh, explain um, from their own perspective what they viewed um, some of the primary issues might be. Yes, thank, thanks very much, um, Lynn. Uh, from a Cayman Islands perspective, uh, uh, what we've seen in, in recent times uh, is the um, emerging in both Hong Kong and Singapore of uh, new forms of companies uh, designed, it would seem, to uh, compete with uh, the offshore uh, offering from Cayman and BVI, the, the no-tax uh, regime um, whereby uh, large conglomerates are, are often held via a, a hold co in the Cayman Islands or BVI or uh, via a fund in um, either of those juris two jurisdictions or where high net worth individuals uh, place their assets in such vehicles again in, in BVI or Cayman. Um, and in, uh, uh, in in more recent times, since those uh, new forms of company have been available in Singapore and Hong Kong, um, there's been uh, something of a reaction from the Cayman Islands in that uh, the rush to set up a Cayman Islands office in either Singapore or Hong Kong seems to have come to the fore. So there, there may be reasons to believe that Singapore and Hong Kong are making some inroads against the tr traditional offshore product. Do you think that's a, um, as a result 
of anything that, that Singapore and or Hong Kong is doing? Um, what, what in particular are they um, doing to attract um, wealthy clients and hedge funds? Yes. So um, the in Singapore, it's the use of the new variable capital company, uh, uh, which is a new offering introduced in, in 2020. Uh, my colleagues will discuss that in a little more detail, of course. But as I understand it, it's essentially a low tax vehicle. Uh, Hong Kong has a similar offering uh, called an open-ended fund uh, company, as I understand it. But essentially what they're trying to do, it would seem, is to allow a similar structure uh, to take shape for these, these high net worth or, or large conglomerate um, concerns, but a bit closer to home. Um, in Hong Kong or in Singapore, without having to send the um, assets or, or the or the holding structure all the way over to the Caribbean. Vivian, um, I I I assume that that Hong Kong is is very interested in what's going on um, in, in the Cayman, and with the newcomer Singapore being aggressive. As not only a, a a financial hub, but but certainly in other practice areas, um, can you kind of describe what's going on in Hong Kong with respect to these particular issues? Sure, happy to weigh in. Um, my background is actually um, practicing predominantly in investment fund structuring, and I'm also a tax lawyer by background. I, I would say that um, what you're seeing, what's been described earlier, and, and um, Michael talked about the emergence of new structures in Singapore and Hong Kong, which is uh, posing, I guess, a, a real competition to Cayman, which has been traditionally for some time, uh, been the um, jurisdictions of choice for a lot of Asia fund structures. Um, but I would say that there's actually a number of um, different factors at play that has led to what we're seeing now. Um, I would actually add uh, or maybe clarify, first of all, that um, the emergence of new fund structures in Hong Kong, I would speak to in particular in LEAF Singapore with the, my colleague Debbie, uh, for, for Hong Kong, um, we actually have uh, what's like called an open architecture for a long time and actually remains so in that uh, we're open to, uh, as far as fund structures are concerned, and even you know corporate structures, um, it, the, the, the use of different jurisdictions of different domicile. Um, so it is actually possible for um, funds that are uh, formed, established, and domiciled and governed by uh, the laws of another jurisdiction, Cayman included, to be established and then offered in, in, in Hong Kong, just that when you're offering in Hong Kong, you have to comply and follow the offering uh, requirements. Uh, if it's retail, you get authorized. If it's private placement, you follow the private placement rules in Hong Kong. So that has been the case and still remains. However, uh, Hong Kong developed a, a Hong Kong domicile fund structure modeled after the Cayman open-ended um, fund structures uh, and also the segregated portfolio company type structures when it uh, came up with the open-ended fund company structure 
Before that, Hong Kong only had a unit trust structure as the uh, form of Hong Kong domicile fund. And so I actually uh, would say that that's in response to a need for Hong Kong to move up maybe the value chain from uh, being just mainly you know, distribution of funds, but also becoming a, a hub for manufacturing fund uh, as the healthy development of the fund management industry. As, so I, I see that uh, as the primary reason, uh, but separately, uh, there has been change changes in the international tax landscape that is kind of um, causing a lot of jurisdictions to relook really at their tax uh, framework and tax rules. And that is also uh, causing uh, corporates to relook really at their structures. And, and so some of that uh, has resulted in um, structures being maybe um, established more this phenomenon we refer to as onshoring uh, to jurisdictions such as such as Singapore and, and, and Hong Kong. And overall, there's just more um, economic substance requirements across the board that, uh, you know, um, cop, cop companies, uh, whether you're setting up a structure, fund structures or investment holding structures, you need to consider, you know, what kind of economic substance requirements you need to comply with in, in, in Cayman, uh, which is more than before, uh, and, and what that looks like for you in terms of operating as, uh, or an entity uh, there versus Singapore or Hong Kong. Debbie, um, as, as Vivian noted, um, there there is competition um, amongst the these hubs, but but Singapore has has always been described or has recently been described as the um, and I hate to use this phrase, but I will use it the poorer cousin um, compared with the likes of of, of Cayman Islands and, and and Hong Kong, but they're catching up rapidly. And, and seem to be a very aggressive player when it comes to this particular area. Uh, can you elaborate? Actually, um, Singapore has more uh, tax incentives that apply to financial services as compared to Hong Kong. Uh, and this is even though uh, Singapore already has one of the lowest um, corporate tax rates in the world. So these tax incentives include uh, tax holidays and concessions, grants and uh, favorable loan conditions. So actually, um, a lot of these uh, tax incentives were due to expire uh, in December of this year. But the budget of this year saw the Singapore government, uh, I suppose, in, in view of uh, the competition from around the world, um, it, it actually took steps to extend all these uh, tax incentives to um, December of 2028. So that's another five years runway for, for Singapore to, to prove how competitive it is. So as for the VCC structure that came into play uh, in 2020, as Michael mentioned, uh, that is considered a game changer. And the idea behind this is to make it easier for family offices to operate in Singapore. Uh, because th these structures, uh, unlike your conventional companies, will enable investors to either subscribe or redeem their investments more easily. And also the privacy issue, um, they, want to, they want to remain um, anonymous, of course, subject to AML concerns. So, so this is actually uh, meant to enable um, Singapore to compete with Cayman Islands. Well, you know, I, there, there are a, a number of themes that that 
has has arisen as, as you know as far as these jurisdictions are concerned. Uh, and I understand the selection process is determined by tax considerations and confidentiality um, considerations. And Debbie, you touched on confidentiality. Um, it seems like you know Singapore might be one step ahead when it comes to protecting um, investors' identities. Um, Michael, what, what's the current take in the Cayman Islands when it comes to um, the issue of confidentiality, putting aside the other issue of tax advantages? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the, the United Kingdom some time ago imposed on us um, the necessity to have an ultimate beneficial owner's registry, uh, but it's it's not the easiest register in the world to access one actually has to go down to the registry and sit at a terminal um so in in term in, in practical terms confidentiality remains fairly strong um in the cayman islands at certainly getting it information concerning exempt company which is what people sending money in or setting up structures from abroad generally uses is, is um is tricky again you're going to have to get somebody to go down to the register with a login and sit down at the terminal and get the information you need um and even then you're you're not going to get very much so um although although there's certainly been an uh, uh an opening um in confidentiality and a relaxation of confidentiality it's um it, it's it's not gone anywhere near far enough to be of concern I would think to investors at this point. Vivian, do you what's going on in Hong Kong when it comes to the issue of uh, of confidentiality? It's clear by your remarks that the principal driver of choosing one jurisdiction over another is is tax avoidance. Um, but what do you have to say with respect to how Kong, how Hong Kong views confidentiality. Well, I think I would have to kind of um, uh, pick up on a few things said earlier. Um, well, I think there is definitely uh, strong headwinds towards more transparency. Um, and so I think the challenge is, you know, if there is the desire to preserve confidentiality, what that means. Because um, I mentioned uh, sort of comic substance uh, requirements in different uh, jurisdictions and um, not, not to go into too much technical details here or, or kind of technical jargons, but the other uh, thing that has really, you know, shaped uh, the other kind of big tax change in recent years that has really shaped the use of jurisdictions is the common reporting standards. And um, even if there are kind of bank secrecy or confidentiality um, in, in some markets, um, because of common reporting standards, there is you know, generally an expectation of disclosing underlying um, ownerships of companies and separate to that, you know, more jurisdictions are also having to introduce requirements of having 
kind of shareholding registers that are um, kind of available to the public. I am conscious that that's not happening yet uh, in the Cayman, I believe. But um, I would say that the tax landscape continue to, to shift. So um, I guess having been a tax lawyer for over 20 years, um, we've really seen a shift where you know, there used to be an understanding that um, you can order your affairs such that um, you would be, you know, between say an option A or option B, you can't um, choose the option or structure your affairs such that you pay the least tax. But there are more and more anti-avoidance rules such that whatever was legitimate tax planning in the past may now fall into the bucket of tax avoidance. And so we want to be very careful there because um, of this kind of uh, landscape that we see today. And um, because of this uh, emphasis on tax transparency, uh, and so it, it is very important for corporations and instructional funds to be taking the approach of understanding what are the tax implications and, and not indefinitely you know, be caught. Uh, on the wrong side um, of, of the regulations, uh, tax regulations, besides other regulatory considerations. So I, I'm a financial regulatory lawyer uh, in, in structuring investment funds, um, looking at the tax issues and um, taking into account regulatory considerations, part and parcel of what I do. Uh, and so um, on whole, we, we, we are looking at a very different landscape now, which is a challenge uh, for, for jurisdictions such as Cayman. Having said that, um, I still have a lot of institutional clients that um, would um, still be using the Cayman structures. So as a funds lawyer, I, I would think that um, looking at it neutral, from a neutral point of view, uh, it's actually giving more options in terms of um, whether you know the a, a structure in Singapore using the VCC would suit them or Hong Kong OFC or you know Hong Kong has also introduced a limited partnership uh, fund structure whether these would suit them or you know because of the target investors and the underlying holdings uh, and you know various factors whether a Cayman structure still work which a number of our clients um, we still use Cayman Michael <laughs> like, have you hear that. Well, you, you know, it's it's interesting. It, it just seems to me, just geographically, that Hong Kong would be um, a primary obvious target for investment, given that you have the Chinese investors and institutions who are who are drawn to Hong Kong, uh, you know, because of the proximity and familiarity. Do you, do you see that, Vivian, as a as a an advantage when it comes to um, attempting to to attract money um, to Hong Kong, or do you think Singapore is becoming a worthy competitor when when it comes to attracting funds from 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 mainland China? Yeah, I'm not, 
I'm just wondering whether you know Debbie has anything um, to add to to preempt any, anything I'm about to say <laughs> on that. Yeah. But, um, uh, maybe I'll just add, jump in here to, to say that um, we're not just targeting uh, investors from China. Um, I mean, we've actually had sizable, um, famous investors from the United States. Uh, there's the Google co-founder, Sergey Brin, mm -hmm. um, and also Ray Dalio, who set up his uh, family office in Singapore. Uh, we also had the British uh, Dyson, uh, James Dyson. So I, I think we're looking at the wide spectrum of investors from, from across the region. And... For your Southeast Asian uh, countries like uh, Thailand and Indonesia, I think Singapore may be a more natural choice than, than say, going to Hong Kong or even Cayman. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and um, I actually practiced in Singapore before coming to Hong Kong 20 years ago. And uh, I have kind of good understanding of, I guess, Singapore as well as Hong Kong. And um, I have always seen and I think that remains the case where I see Hong Kong well, Singapore first as a wealth management center and then developing itself as an asset management center whereas Hong Kong in a way it's been always more of an asset management center that's now in recent years developing itself as a wealth management center because of China uh, money coming from China and then just kind of um, the evolution of the market overhaul overall and um so I guess it's yes, in, in, in brief to your question, Lean, uh, Hong Kong being kind of quite naturally attractive for um, investors to assess the market because of its standing as a um, international um, IPO center and international asset management hub for, for some time. And it has also been the gateway to uh, China investment opportunities. And I've been in a lot of, um, um, I guess, milestones, groundbreaking deals from my career, which is relation to um, the evolution or the China markets, uh, access to the, the evolution of the China uh, markets. Uh, and also with the outbounds uh, from China um, through Hong Kong to assess international investment opportunities. So Hong Kong it isn't quite an open platform for that. But I, I think, you know, Hong Kong and Singapore being both very strong financial centers in Asia, um, the emergence of these two centers um, and, and then going from strength to strength, I think, it's actually good for for Asia, um, and and um, yeah, brings a lot of opportunities to the markets uh, in Asia, and and um, uh, as a, a more and more important part of the global economy. Well, that's that's uh, you know maybe I, I I should should have Michael chime in here because it seems like. The, the the Cayman Island structure and popularity is under attack. Michael, I understand that there's been um, attempts by the um, Cayman authorities to, to set up camp in Asia. Can you kind of describe some of the um, attempts to 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 mark out the Cayman territory in Asia? Certainly, uh, there's been talk for some time of uh, opening a, a Cayman's Islands office, as it were, um, in either Hong Kong or 
Singapore, but um, those efforts seem to have uh, ratcheted up a little since uh, um, Singapore and Hong Kong started these new uh, inroads into the offshore business. Um, whether it will be one or the other is is a, or whether it will happen at all is a, a tricky question. Um, and something to remember is that both Hong Kong and Singapore do already have um, offshore firms with with um, offices on the ground. Hong Kong more than Singapore, it's fair to say there are uh, more of the established um, offshores in Hong Kong than there are in Singapore. So to to the extent that um, the Cayman Islands was looking to set up an office with a view to reminding people that we're still here and helping to funnel business, one would think that the sensible option would be Hong Kong, would be Singapore rather, on the basis that um, there are uh, fewer uh, law firms sort of funneling work there themselves, and the Hong Kong market's already fairly well served. But who knows which one the um, Cayman Islands government will choose. Um, it may come down to finances, it may come down to where it's easier to get somebody appointed and um, a work permit and all, all those sorts of things that that come with the logistics of setting up an office, because I suspect they will want it staffed by Caymanians, uh, uh, because that's the usual way that the Cayman Islands government operates. Um, my money, I think, is on Singapore overall. Thanks, Michael, for those comments. Um, we're coming to the end of the, of the podcast, so I just want to open it up for final comments um, from the group. Uh, Debbie, any thoughts, any takeaways? Um, I will say that another way of looking at it would be that all three jurisdictions, uh, I mean, they can be compatible and, you know, exist side by side because um, depending on the needs and geographical location of a particular group, right, they can have companies in, in even each of uh, Singapore, Cayman and uh, Hong Kong. I've actually seen companies that 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 have actually have um have uh, group companies in all three jurisdictions. Brilliant. Yeah, I would uh, agree with that. And um, what I would highlight is that uh, because, as I said earlier, the the landscape has changed a lot over the recent years, uh, and um, and, and uh, there are actually new um, tax uh, changes that uh, were coming down the line. Um, and, and so um, companies that would be using uh, sort of uh, structures uh, that are in Hong Kong, Singapore or Cayman or other jurisdictions, you know, would have to be mindful of the complexity um, and, and also anticipate the changes that are coming. And I guess, um, what we are well placed and we often do is to, um, being able to advise clients on um, the details or the, the intricacies in, in all of these um, with our understanding of the law and regulations in the respective jurisdictions, but also international changes. Uh, and, and so um, I think it's, it's a matter of, you know, having more options with the emergence of the structures in Singapore and Hong Kong we talk about uh, that provides companies and, and investors and fund managers with more options, um, but in navigating um, all of that op options in a, a kind of complex environment uh, is, is something that, you know, uh, takes some scale. So uh, hopefully, you know, um, with our offices, uh, we were well-placed to, you know, support more, more clients with this kind of need. 
Michael. Certainly. Um, it will be interesting to see how all of this develops. Um, it, it's, it's fairly plain that there's plenty of work um, out there and plenty of structures um, to be shared amongst us all. And it will be interesting to see whether the uh, Singapore and Hong Kong uh, vehicles make real inroads into the traditional offshore business um, or, or whether the offshore offering um, essentially holds them back and uh, eventually beats them off. So it will be interesting to watch um, over the years to come. You know, fortunately for our listeners, Denton's is uh, well situated, given our global footprint and expertise to provide advice to our clients when it comes to these cross-border uh, intricate, complex issues. And I would at this time like to thank um, all the participants um, for the thoughts and views on this cutting edge topic. Thanks again.